If you were sitting by somebody that said amen, you need to be here. Okay. All right, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. Life lessons from the wisest man in the world. We're in Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 through 10. We're in the NIV version. My daughter has gotten me to the NIV for this series anyway. Uh, but I want you to follow with me verses uh, 1 through 10. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Oh, goodness. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It's better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it's not wise to ask such questions. I was talking to... Jason Kaysen, by the way, this, is, this sermon's called Good, Better, and Best. Talking to Jason Kaysen last week, I believe it was last week, we was talking about he was in FFA in various clubs or groups on a state level and a national level. One of them, he was in meat judging. And judging, you know, looking at beef and so forth, and which is there's different grades of beef. I didn't realize it. I knew there was different grades of beef, but I didn't realize there was five different levels good better best some sorry and sorrier uh, utility grade it's not sold in stores it's in cans and and soups i don't even know if it's beef then there's the next grade a little better than that is standard it's uh you can eat it but you got to put one foot on it to cut it just about uh it's like the little boy that got invited he's a first grade boy and he got invited to his friend's house to spend the night and his friend's house was high class, and he, you know, didn't have much. And they were over there eating at the table, and they had the fine china and everything out, and they were having roast beef for supper. And he was trying to cut his roast beef, and it kept sliding off the dish. And finally, the woman, that, uh, the mother of the little boy he was spending the night with, she said, Johnny, would you like for me to cut your meat for you? He said, no, ma'am, I'll get it. We have meat tough like this at our house every once in a while. So a lot of times, uh, that kind of meat would be very, very tough to eat. And then there's select. It's pretty in the store, maybe, but uh, you've got to have good teeth to eat it. Choice is probably what most of us get, choice meat. The reason it goes up in grade is because of the marveling. Fat is flavor. I've been telling people that for a long time. Uh, fat is flavor. But there, it goes beyond choice. It goes to prime. Prime is what's in the nicer restaurants. Got good marbling. You can go on into Wagyu and Kobe beef and that kind of stuff. That's on a whole another level. But the, you can go from bad to better to the, the best, in other words. Same thing with perfume. I didn't know this. Never been connoisseur of perfume or cologne or anything like that. I didn't know there's five levels of perfume. 
Here's what, here's what they are. First one is extract de parfume. I guess this is French. I have to ask sister, my sister back there. Uh, that's 35 to 45% concentration of perfume oil. Just a little dab of that will last you all day. You'll probably smell a little bit the next day. Parfume is 24 to 35% perfume oil in that. That's pretty pricey, but a little of that goes a long way. Eau de Parfume is 15 to 25% concentration, moderately priced, but good quality. Eau de Toilette, Toilette, or Toilette or Toilette, <laughs> that's a whole nother perfume right there. Anyway, <laughs> 5 to 15%, you won't even smell it by lunchtime. It'll be off. Eau de Cologne, 2 to 5% concentration. That's the kind I get. You can get a quart for about $5, I mean, but it takes a half a cup to smell something. Uh, and then this last one, I'm probably not pronouncing it, eau fraiche or something, 1% to 3% concentration. You can take a bath in that, and you won't even cover your body odor. Anyway, that's, it's got different levels, good, better, best. Same thing with hotels. I've had the privilege maybe twice to stay in a five-star hotel. Uh, just a special occasion. They probably start at 400 or so and go on up from there a night. But uh, most of them, there's not many of them around. Just a few of them in Florida, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, some of that area. Uh, if you go to a five-star hotel, you better have some cash in your pocket because they're going to be serving you constantly. You've got to tip constantly. Valet parking, all this kind of stuff. And so it's great service. Four-star, which is some very nice hotels, a four-star hotel, there is a difference. You can tell a difference, just the service, but it's beautiful and it's elaborate. Three-star is probably what most of us stay in. You know, it's got the, a nice pool, it's clean, they'll bring you towels when you need extra towels and things like that. You have a continental breakfast, everything is nice, it's comfortable, everything's okay. One old boy was staying at a three-star hotel, and he, said, he told his buddy, he said, I'm not going to stay in any more five-star hotels anymore. I used to, but I don't stay in those anymore. He said, why not? He said, because they give you such beautiful, fluffy towels, you just about can't get them in your suitcase. Anyway, uh, <laughs> a three-star is pretty normal, pretty, pretty average of what we would mostly stay. A two-star starting to get a little bit shaky. If that's all you can afford, that's all you can afford, but... Usually it might be the wallpaper peeling a little bit. The floors a little, might have a little musty smell. The air conditioner rattles and makes a lot of noise. Uh, not necessarily where you want to stay, but it's okay. They'll leave the light home for you. Uh, but a one-star, I don't even know if they have a one-star. If a one-star, they're probably doing drugs in the room next door. Uh, you need to go in there with a pistol and maybe a, some roach spray or something like that. And your car may not even be there in the morning. I don't know. But uh, there's different levels in just about everything, good, better, and best. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Have you ever went to something just expecting it was something going to be great and it turned out to be a dud? And have you ever went to something you, didn't, you went kicking and screaming, you didn't want to go, and it turned out to be one of the greatest things you've ever been to? Sometimes they get reversed. What we're going to see that Solomon's going to tell us what we think is best is on down the line. And what we think is not that much is really what's best. Hmm. His wisdom, once again, is going to come out. 
uh, but it's hard for us to swallow. Let's look at it. Wisdom and the better life. Now, once again, the value of God's wisdom is on display here. Solomon was a wise man. Whenever he became king, God gave him a blank check. He said, "You, what do you want? And he said, I just want the wisdom to be able to discern how to lead these people. And God said, you got it. He said, because you didn't ask for wealth and riches, you're going to get that too. And he had all of it. He had about anything you can imagine. But he's always putting a plug in for wisdom here, not man's wisdom. Man's wisdom is foolishness in the eyes of God. But it's God's wisdom is what's the key. They say this chapter right here is the hinge chapter of Ecclesiastes. There's 111 verses before this one and 111 verses after this. Now, I didn't count them. That's just what I read. But this book, this chapter right here, the word better is used 11 times. So he's constantly talking about what's better than something else. He's comparing it. So we're going to look and find out that what we think is better is not all that good. And what we don't think is all that good is really what's best. Uh, so let's look at it today. Here's the first one that we probably won't agree with, but here it goes. Sorrow is better than laughter, verses 1 through 4. Now, I'm not going to take it verse by verse. I'm going to combine them and basically give you the general message of each little section. And so the first little section is verses 1 through 4. Let's read that together again. A good name is better than fine perfume. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. Boy, I tell you. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Okay, let's just, I just combine all this. Sorrow is better than laughter. Let me talk to you about laughter for just a moment. The Bible has all types of literature in it, all types of subjects, I guess you could say. There's drama in here. There's romance in the Bible. There's violence in the Bible. There's mysteries in the Bible. There's poetry in the Bible. There's sexual situations in the Bible. There's not a lot about comedy or laughing or humor. Not a lot in the Bible. Now, we believe Jesus certainly had joy and laughter Kids flock to Jesus. Kids don't flock to somebody that's a stick, stick, you know, stiff neck, stick in the mud type person. They don't, they don't, but they ran to Jesus all the time for a lot of different reasons. Humor and what we laugh at is probably one of the biggest mysteries in life. It's kind of like sleep. You know how some people can get by four or five hours and some people need eight or nine or ten hours. Sleep is a strange thing and humor is a strange thing. Some people don't have a sense of humor. Some people have a dry sense of humor. They're funny, but they, just, they don't crack a smile or whatever. Everybody, it's a very unusual thing, what we laugh at. Listen to this. A baby laughs 150 times a day. Grown-ups laugh about 15 times a day. <laughs> the older you get, the less there is to laugh about, I guess. Uh, we pay money to comedians to make us laugh. Here. Some of them make millions. I mean, some of them are just doing something on the weekend, but some of them make millions because they make us laugh, and we like that, and we'll pay for that. Hollywood shows us that we can laugh at ourselves. Some of the popular shows were America's home, Funniest Home Videos and bloopers and things like that, so we can laugh at our own stupidity and our own mistakes and our own accidents and things like that. 
When you grew up, you watched cartoons. It made you laugh. You read the comics in the newspaper. Sometimes it would make, make you laugh. We'd go to a circus, and they'd have clowns to try to make you laugh. And so laughter is a big part of our life. The Bible says a merry heart does good like a medicine. So it's good to laugh. Doctors say that those that laugh a lot live longer. Did you know that? You better start laughing a little bit. Uh, foolish laughter. Now, the Bible says there are some things you're not supposed to laugh at. I don't know if we all realize that. We're in a very cruel world. And we're in a world where people laugh at the expense of other people a lot. Even growing up as kids, you pick on people. If you find something about them that's different, oh, you're skinny, you're fat, four eyes, freckles, buck teeth, big ears, big feet, whatever. We, we, we pick out something that we can laugh at the expense of somebody else. I, I read this uh, one time. There was a chicken farmer who raises you know, chickens for the commercial market, and he got in a load of like 10,000 biddies. They're all little, little yellow biddies, and he was going to grow them up you know, and raise them. And he got in a shipment of 10,000, and he was looking at the trays with all the biddies on there, and he saw one biddy that had a black spot in its top of its head. It wasn't perfectly little yellow. It had a black spot. He said, I better go ahead and take that one out. And the guy said, why? He said, because the other biddies will peck it to death. They'll see that black spot, and they will attack, because he's different. And they will attack it. And that's the, way, that's the way the world is. We love to point out what's different or what's odd and laugh at it. Here's what the Bible says you, you're not supposed to laugh at. Ephesians 5, 3, and 4, you're not supposed to laugh at holy things. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or, or that kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. You shouldn't be laughing at coarse, ungodly, sinful, unpure things. That's what he says here. We're not supposed to laugh at someone else's handicaps. Leviticus 19.14 says this, Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But fear your God, I am the Lord. What's he saying? He said, if you put a stumbling block in front of somebody that's blind, you're wanting to watch them fall. You're wanting to do something to, to, to laugh at them. And he says, don't laugh at someone else's misfortune or their handicap. Don't laugh at someone else's misfortune. Proverbs 17, 5. Whoever mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker. Whoever gloats over disaster will not go unpunished. You don't laugh at the misfortune of others. You know, they were even laughing at our Savior when he was on the cross. They were gambling at the foot of the cross. They had already um, were making a mockery of him because they put a crown of thorns on him and said, there's the king, put a robe on him. They were, they, it was all mockery. Mockery is laughing at the expense of somebody else, laughing at them. Now, that's the biggest fool in the world when you laugh in the face of Almighty God. Look at Matthew 26, 68, and 27, 29. He said, they said, prophesy to us the Messiah. Who hit you? They'd slap him and then say, prophesy. It was all part of the shame that they were putting on him. It said in verse 27, verse 29, it said, 
Then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Said, Hail the king of the Jews. You're a big fool if you're laughing at God. You're laughing at the one who's given his life for you. You're laughing at the one who's got you in the palm of his hand. And you're going to stand before him one day. There's a lot of things you don't laugh about uh, in this life. Now there's good laughter. Uh, Bible says they'll know we're Christians by our love. And I dare say the second thing that stands out that somebody's a Christian is their joy. If you've got the joy of the Lord, which is your strength, uh, that's one of the greatest testimonies that something's changed in your heart. We used to sing, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart in Bible school. Uh, Christmas we sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come. It's joy, it's joy. Jesus told his disciples, he said this, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. The Bible says in his presence there's fullness of joy. Joy. Here's the kind of, we laugh because we've got the joy of the Lord. It's, it's kind of a byproduct of the joy that's in our heart. We can laugh in spite of our circumstances. Did you know that? Uh, Bible says, James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Huh? Count it joy. Paul said this, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. He was in prison when he told him to do that. So we can laugh in spite of our circumstances. We can laugh in the face of death. We're supposed to be able to laugh at death. Here's a, here was a very unusual scripture. In Luke 13, 31, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, you better get out of town, basically, because Herod's going to kill you. And listen to what Jesus said. Go tell that fox. <laughs> that doesn't sound like Jesus, but go tell that fox. I'm going to keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow and on the third day, I'll reach my goal. What's he saying? He said, tell him I'm going to be on the job until it's time to leave. He'll know where he can find me. Jesus said this. He said, nobody's going to take my life from me. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it right back up. I've come to this world to die. So you're not going to scare me with death. I can laugh in the face of death. And that's the way a Christian should be able to do. We should be able to laugh in the face of death. You can't threaten Christians that really know the Lord with dying. I heard a, one time a guy named James Rogers in 1960 was going to face the firing squad in Nevada. They asked him if he had a last request. He said, yes, I'd like a bulletproof jacket. Uh, so even in the midst, he's fixing to die in just a matter of minutes. He still had something to say. D.L. Moody said, one day you're going to hear that I've died. Don't you believe it? Because I'm going to be more alive than I've ever been in my life. So we can laugh at circumstances, at trials, even in the face of death if you, if you really got the goods. But Solomon says, sorrow is better than laughter. He's going to have to explain that to me. That's hard to grasp. All right, let's look at good sorrow. He says, sorrow is better than laughter. Wait a minute now. I'd rather go to a party than a funeral, wouldn't you? One of the great blessings of life 
is that one day we're going to go to heaven. There won't be any more sorrow. Won't be any more tears. The former things will pass away, and God will wipe away all tears from our eyes. So that's what we're looking forward to. That's, but he's saying, no, in this life, sorrow is better than laughter, if I was to put it down in my words. Why is sorrow so good for us? It ain't good to us. Daddy used to say, that diet food, it might be good for me, but it's not good to me. Well, why is sorrow not something we enjoy, but something that's good for us, even better than laughter? Well, let me tell you why. You grow more in, through sorrow than you grow on the mountaintop, the great things that happen to you in life. You get a chance to show what you've got. Look at Romans 8, 35 through 37. These are the things that produce sorrow and pain in our life. Who shall separate me from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Those are all pretty bad. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. It ain't scaring us. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Here's the thing. Why sorrow and pain and heartaches and trials are better for you than laughter, being on the mountaintop all the time? You get to show that you're more than a conqueror. You get to show that your God is stronger. Your God can hold you up. Your God can take you through anything. Let me give you four things that, that sorrow and pain, why it's better for us than laughter. Godly sorrow sharpens us. He said in verse 3, I won't show back up there, it builds character. It strengthens our faith. Sorrow does. Godly sorrow enhances your witness. When you have the heart of God and you look it around at the world and your heart's broken and you've got tears in your eyes when you see mankind going to hell, you really got the heart of God in many different ways. It expands your heart. How you handle adversity and trouble and trials is the best testimony you got that's when people say wow they've got something i need they can go through life and they i know they don't have it easy but look at what how they stand look, look how their life is whenever you see the world around you that's crumbling the bible says they that go forth bearing precious seed and weeping with weeping shall doubtless come again rejoicing bringing their sheaves with when your heart breaks your heart's lining up with god his compassion, his love for mankind. Godly sorrow leads us to repentance. If, you did, if God didn't make you sorrowful for your condition, you would never come to him. So there's a lot of good things about sorrow that's better than laughter. Solomon, you're right. John Piper, the, uh, the preacher, said when he was 28 years old, just hadn't been married too long, had a child two years old, his parents were in Israel doing a tour. He got word from his brother-in-law they were in a bad bus accident. He said, I'm going to tell you, John, your mama's dead. John said, I went into my room and I cried and cried and cried. I was very close to my mother. And then all of a sudden, I was overwhelmed with the joy of the Lord. And here's what God kept saying to me, or kept showing me what, what the reason I was rejoicing. I thank God I had a good mother. A lot of people never had a good mother. 
I thank God I had her for 28 years. I thank God that she went instantly, didn't suffer. She went straight into glory. I thank God that he left my father here for me. I thank God that my mother's happier now than she's ever been in her life. It's something how that sorrow just welled up and led to an overwhelming joy. Anyway, Solomon says sorrow is better than laughter. Number two, a rebuke is better than flattery. That's a hard one to swallow too. Look at verse 5 and 6. It's better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. It's like the crackling of thorns under the pot. So is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Here's another one. Whoever rebukes a person will in the end gain favor rather than one who has a flattering tongue. Okay, I did a series back in the 1980s. We did classes on it, on the tongue. One of the most unusual things about the tongue, Jesus said something in Matthew 12. He just cast the demons out of somebody that was blind and couldn't speak. And now they could see and they could speak and they were free. And the Pharisees watching all this says he's casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. He didn't say it right then, but a few verses later, Jesus said this. You're going to give an account for every idle word that comes out of your mouth. We're going to have to stand and give an account for on the day of judgment. Wow. Your words are powerful. Words are powerful. Your tongue, it's easier to sin with your tongue than any other way. You can sin with a critical tongue. That's why they, they uh, wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. They didn't have faith and they had a murmuring tongue. You can use your tongue to spread rumors. That's spreading information that is not true or not substantiated, but you're telling it anyway. You can use your tongue to spread gossip. Spreading gossip is saying things that are truthful, but they're personal and private. You need to keep your mouth shut. Even if it's the truth, doesn't mean you have a right to say it. You can sin with your tongue by swearing everything from old-fashioned cussing to blasphemy. Slandering somebody. You can mar somebody's character, destroy their life, their livelihood. Contentious words. That's using your tongue to stir up trouble. Lying. There's so many ways you can lie and deceive people. Improper joking and jesting is what he talked about earlier. Boasting, grumbling, griping, idle words. There's a lot of ways you can sin with your tongue. Somebody said it this way. The uncontrolled tongue has wrecked many lives. An uncontrolled tongue can break up a home, can divide a marriage, can send an innocent man to prison, can crush the spirit of a child can split a church wide open, can send somebody to an early grave. There's four reasons God gave us a tongue. One of the things that separates us from the animals, we talked about this on a Tuesday night weeks ago, four reasons God gave us the ability to communicate. Number one, it's an instrument of evangelism. Philip spoke to the Ethiopian eunuch out in the middle of the desert. Paul on Mars Hill, Peter on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says it this way. It says, with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. You get to use this tongue to share the best news of anybody's ever heard. That's how people come into the kingdom of God. They have to hear this message. 
It's an instrument of edification. You can use your tongue to build up somebody that's discouraged, that's given up, that see no hope. You can lift them up and encourage and strengthen their heart. The tongue is an instrument of prayer. You can use your tongue to call on the king of kings and watch mountains be removed. Watch the impossible become possible because God's been invited into the situation. It's an instrument of prayer. It's an instrument of praise. You can use your tongue to glorify and praise and give thanks to God in worship and praise and adoration. Now, flattery. He said a rebuke is better than flattery. One of the sins of the tongue is flattery. Flattery uh, is this. It's a form of lying. Somebody said it this way. Flattery is saying something to somebody's face that you wouldn't say behind their back. There's a lot of things we would say behind people's back that we wouldn't say to their face. Flattery is saying it to their face, but you wouldn't say it behind their back. Because flattery, here's two things that make flattery wrong and why rebuke is better than flattery. Flattery is by nature hypocritical praise. You're praising somebody, but you're not sincere about it. You're lying with a smile on your face. Here's the second thing about flattery, why it's so wrong. Usually when somebody is giving flattery, they're trying to manipulate someone. You're telling them something they want to hear so you can get something in return. Another compliment or they're going to, they'll do something for you, whatever. It's a form of manipulation, flattery is. Now, a rebuke, yeah, but I still, I'd rather have flattery than a rebuke. And he says rebuking is better than flattery. A rebuke is when somebody tells you something you need to hear. Not something you want to hear, something you need to hear. Uh, it's probably correcting you. It's pointing out something you did wrong or whatever. It's chastising you. It's admonishing you in some way. He said that's better for you than flattery. Somebody patting you on the back and saying all kind of flowery words about you. Much better to get a rebuke if you can take it because that rebuke can change you. It can help you to be corrected. You can realize that person cares about you. They're doing something for your good. So anyway, here's, a, here's another thing. We think one thing is better. He says something else is better. A long haul is better than a shortcut. Verses 7 through 9. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe can, corrupts a heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Let's talk about this a little bit. C.S. Lewis said one time, when I was a child and I had a toothache, I waited till I couldn't take it to tell Mama. Because when I told Mama, she would give me some aspirin or something to help me sleep, but I knew when I told her, she's going to take me to the dentist. She was not just going to give me a quick, instant fix. She was going to give me something for the long term of that tooth. And I didn't want that. I wanted just a quick, easy fix. I remember we were up in the mountains years ago. We went to Dollywood, and we was coming back, staying in Maggie Valley, and it was a long way, and you know, I think it was about an hour and a half, two-hour drive. And I looked on the map, and I found us a shortcut. And it was over the mountains. I mean, I was going to cut off at least 15 or 20 miles by going this way instead of all the way around there. And that took us an extra hour and a half, two hours, that shortcut. Uh, but by nature... Human beings, we like the route of least resistance. We want the shortcuts. We want to do it quickly. If you ever notice 
Rivers are always curvy. You know why they curve? Because water always takes the route of least resistance. You put your water hose in your yard. It's not going to run uphill. It's going to go down. When it comes into a, a rock, it's going to go around it. Or a tree, it's going to go around it. It's taking the, the route of least resistance. Now, what he's saying is, rather than take a shortcut in life and doing things quick and easy, it's better to do it the long way. And God does it that way with us. He takes us the long route. It does, he doesn't do things instantly. If God made everything instantly easy for us, we'd all be like spoiled children, which most of us are anyway. We want it quick. We want it easy. Why is life hard for a Christian? Here's what I, I wrote down. Five reasons God makes it long and hard and doesn't give us a short, quick way out all the time. Number one, God doesn't allow us an easy road to protect us from something worse down the road. In other words, you've got a child that's playing there by the riverbank. They like, they're trying to catch tadpoles and frogs, and, and they're enjoying that, but you won't let them have that enjoyment because there's a gator in that river. And moccasins been known in that area. And that water's pretty swift. If they fall in it, they're going to, you won't be able to get. So you're, you're, you're taking away their momentary pleasure because you're looking at a bigger picture. And that's one reason God doesn't let us have the easy route that seems easy and fun to us. He's looking at a bit, bigger picture. He lets us experience pain because that's the only way you grow. The only way a muscle grows is if, you re resistance it's got to work it's got to have something to make it break down and build itself back up number three the reason god lets life be difficult for us because he leaves us here in a war zone when he saves us he says i want you to stay right there now, you're in the middle of a war but I, that's where i want you and i'm going to take you through it but you gotta you gotta understand it sometimes god makes it hard on us because he's spanking us we need to be disciplined at times, and sometimes that's part of it. And here's the bottom line. God is more concerned about our character than our comfort. Much more concerned about what you're growing in your character than how much comfort you have. Here's what the Bible says about shortcuts and the danger of trying to do the shortcut. Proverbs 21.5 is one of them. It says, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. You know, you've got these quick, get-rich-quick schemes. You want to get money quick, usually leads to po uh, poverty. And those that diligent stay with something over time, that usually leads to prosperity. Number two, he said, uh, said in verse 19 too, says, Desire without knowledge is not good. How much more will hasty feet miss the way? He says, when you rush into things, you will miss the big picture a lot of times. Don't get in a hurry to take a shortcut. Proverbs 22, 29. Do you see someone skilled in their work? They will, uh, they will serve before kings. They will not serve before officials of low rank. Somebody that's skilled, the only way to become skilled is to do something over a long period of time. And you get good at it. And those are the ones that get promoted and get the better jobs and so forth. You, you've developed it over time. So God doesn't give us shortcuts on anything. He's going to take us the long route. Here's the last thing. Today is better than yesterday. Now, I know that's not true. Because uh, this world's getting bad. It's getting worse each day. Uh, how many of you ever said, man, those were the good old days? I've said that 
time before myself. I love to hear old-timers, which I'm an old-timer now, I guess. I love to hear old-timers talk about the old days, old Williston or whatever, what things were like. I think back, somebody said those that just lived with the good old days is a combination of people with a bad memory and a good imagination. I don't know. I remember my neighbor, Glenn's brother, uh, Raymond. I, we all called him Gussie. <clears throat> Gussie would stop by the house. Uh, when I was out mowing or something like that, and he'd, what are you doing, and all this kind of stuff, and we'd talk a little bit. And they, that field out there has had so many, I'd like to know how many different crops it's had over the last 40 years or so. But anyway, he was growing corn or something out there, and I said, Gussie, don't you wish, <clears throat> don't you wish we could go back to the good old days and this and that? He said, no. <laughs> I said, why? He said, well, we had an old tractor, didn't have you know, it was a wide open, didn't have a cab, didn't have air conditioning, didn't have radio, didn't have a GPS system, didn't have this. And he went and listened to all the things. He said, we can do four or five times more today than we could because of technology than we could do 40 years ago. lot better. And that's true. Technology has definitely increased and did better. But most of us always think yesterday's better than today. And Solomon says today's better than yesterday. Now, there are three periods of time in life. God's the same yesterday, today, forever. The three periods of time in man's view is the past, the present, and the future. Brother Al used to say it's like driving a vehicle. If you're a good driver, you're looking way down the road, future. You're looking what's down the road, you know, a mile up the road, see if there's a wreck, there's something happening, you might need to make adjustments. Every once in a while, you glance in your mirror, see what's coming up behind you. That's like the past. You know, some of these people like this, they don't know anybody else in the world. No, that's not a good driver. You're, you're looking down the road, and you're looking back, every, just glancing. You don't drive looking like this, uh, but you, you glance. He said, but the, good, the best driver is the one that's aware of what's going on around him. That's the present. And that's really what Solomon's saying, too. Here's what Paul said. In Philippians 3.13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching, forgetting those things which are behind me, I reach forth on those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling in Christ. If you live in the past, you can live a life of regrets and pain and missed opportunities. All you can think about is what it could have been, should have been, all that. Paul never got over his past. He never got over the fact that he used to kill and arrest Christians. Here's what he said about that. He couldn't, years later after he was converted, he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. I, 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 in my past life, what I did, I can't hardly get over it. James said, don't get so stuck in the future. He said, there are some people who said, we're going to go to this city, we're going to make this money, we're going to do this and that. And he said, you don't even know what tomorrow holds. So don't live in your past and don't just live for what's down the road. You've got to live in the present. Solomon's right. Today is better even than yesterday. 
Proverbs 22 warns that a good name is to be more desired than great riches. He said that's better. A good name is better than a pocket full of money or a bank, full of, bank account full of money. A good name. I'm going to close with this. Jesus had some friends on this earth. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. They would invite him over to their house, and he'd go there to socialize with them. He'd been around those disciples all the time, and he needed a break from them, I think. And he would go to their house, and one day he went over there, and Martha was in there cooking supper, and she was putting out, going to put out a spread. They loved Jesus, and they wanted to give him the best. Mary, she, she's in there sitting at Jesus' feet, talking to him while Martha's doing all the work. And Martha had all she could take of it. So Jesus... Would you make Mary come in here and help me? I'm doing all this myself. And Jesus said this. This is my paraphrase. Martha, Martha, what you're doing is good. What Mary's doing is better. Doesn't make sense. A lot of us think in our mind, me trying to serve the Lord is what's best in my life. No, what's best in your life is letting God work in your life. Because you can't serve him to please him unless he's done a work in you first. So good, better, best, we're all having to figure it out. As a Christian, it's not between what's right and wrong all the time or what's good and evil. It's what's good, what would be better, and what's the best thing God has for me. That's where it gets tough. And a lot of times what we think is best is not what God says is best. I want you to stand with me. Is Anna here today? Uh, Anna, come on down if you would. Anna wanted prayer. She's go, fixing to go off to camp uh, to work with young people and to serve the Lord. And this is missions too, you know. Missions isn't just always across the pond. It's right here in our neighborhoods, in our own state, other states. So would you like to come down and let's, let's pray and send her forth that God would use her and she can see young kids coming to the kingdom of heaven and lives transformed and changed. Stretch your hands this way. Let's pray for her. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we lift up Anna. God, I thank you, Lord, for her heart. I thank you, Lord, that you have a call upon her life and she feels not only wants to do this, but feels a burden, feels a need, feels a direction. I pray, God, that you would anoint her with the Spirit of God. May she have words to say, Lord, that would help a young person that's searching for something in this life. May she have opportunity after opportunity to lead somebody to a saving knowledge of Jesus. God, may she be an encourager to someone that's discouraged. May she give hope to those who've lost hope. And God, may she give a love to someone that's searching so hard to be loved. I pray God anoint her, use her for your glory, and may she come back with great testimonies. Look what the Lord has done because I have been a willing servant, and it's God and no one else. We thank you for it, Father, and we ask it and believe it and receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. You're dismissed. I lift the top up there, Keith.